So this morning we begin our study in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. As we look at the letters to the churches, uh, we start looking at um, this in Philadelphia. Is everything working okay, Jesse? Oh, okay. We're all right. All right. I just want to make sure the feed's going. Okay. The feed is going, and I told my daughter that if I remembered this morning, I'd say, good morning, Lucy. So uh, that said, um, Revelation chapter 3 uh, meets us right where we're at this morning, I believe. Um, in, in chapter 3, uh, we're, we've already looked at one church, and we'll be in the church of Philadelphia this morning. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but as I started reading this part of the chapter, I thought of uh, Will Smith singing, In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days. Um, but that's not the Philadelphia we're talking about. We're not talking about the city of brotherly love in America. We're talking about this nation that's in Asia Minor, or this city. And so as we remember what we're studying, we look at the revealing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelations, it's the revelation. And it's the revelation, the one singular revelation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And yet, he's no longer Jesus uh, in flesh, he's actually Jesus in his second coming, in his glorified body. And what we see here is that there's an outline built into the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus says to the apostle John, I want you to write down the things that have been, the things that you have seen, and write what is going on right now, and write what will take place after these things. And we're about to get into after these things, but right now we're still in these things, the things that are happening and taking place right now. For us, uh, we're looking at these seven literal churches that were in Asia Minor in the day of John the Apostle around 90 or 96 AD, somewhere around there. But there's also historical application, as many believe that there were seven uh, and are seven periods of church history. But then personally... There's this application that for, is for us today to glean the things that he's saying to these churches. And so at the end of each section, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not confined to time and space. And so he's able to speak to one generation. And, and even in the things he has them write down, we read the scriptures they are alive and living and active, and they're able to speak to us in our circumstances today. And so as we go to the next slide, I, and, and for you guys at home, I'm sorry we don't have the slides on the screen. I am not that technologically advanced, um, but hopefully I can do a good job of explaining things. But the question that I always have when I read the letters to the seven churches is, which church should I be like? If there's this group of seven churches that Jesus speaks specifically and prophetically to, which church should I be like? And I would submit to you, because I was reading Skip Heitzig this week, he says that in every church service, there are likely folks that are like each of the seven churches. It, there are those that like the Ephesians. They're busy, they're active, they're discerning, and yet they're no longer intensely in love with and devoted to Jesus Christ. They got all the right stuff going on on the outside, and yet their, their primary love, their, their passion, the thing they're passionate about is no longer their personal relationship with Jesus. And then there are folks like the Smyrnan church. They're hassled, they're tormented, they're even mocked for their faith, and yet they hold fast to Jesus Christ. And then there are those that are like the church at Pergamos. They're Christians that have compromised in some form or fashion, and they have begun to tolerate false teaching and false doctrines, things that are not true about Jesus. And then there are also Thyatirans. Thyatirans were known for being loose morally, spiritually, and lacking discernment at all. So they went from compromise to being corrupted spiritually. And then there are those that I call the Sardinians or the Sardines. And in the Sardis church, uh, they, were in, they were Christian in name only, but they were spiritually dead. Now I call them Sardines because to me, Sardines kind of stink. 
There's a stench that goes up to the nose of the Lord. And so being Christian in name only, but they're spiritually dead. So I made a case for this last week as we looked at it to say that where the spirit of God is, there is life. And I believe that there's many Christians that have gone through the rote and the rites of passage and they've gone to church their whole lives and yet they don't have the Holy Spirit and so there's really no life in them. They have a name that they're alive, but they're actually dead. And so that being said, I don't know which church you would like to be like. I would say that there are several there that have some good qualities. So I think we could chew on the meat, hopefully take on those good qualities and not try to avoid the bad qualities, but instead just be filled with the Spirit and He'll be sure to correct us in the areas where we fall short. But this week we look at the church in Philadelphia, the Philadelphian church. Now, the Philadelphian church was planted in a city that was founded for the the singular sake of promoting the world's wisdom, taking what the world has and reveres as as godly as good and, and promoting it as it, the truth, the way to live. Um, inside of this city, there was a group of Christians that Jesus is going to describe for us. So let's read in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7, where Jesus says to John, he says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those. My pages stuck together. To test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive, minds that would respond in faith, and feet to put walking into what we learn. Lord, help us to take what we learn and apply it to our lives in the here and now. Thank you for teaching us these things. Thank you for your ability to meet us right where we're at, and we pray this morning that you'd be glorified in our subjection, our submission to the instruction you have for us, Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this Philadelphian church, uh, I want to point out that we are inside of this city, and as we're inside of this city, we see a group of Christians that Jesus describes as having a little strength. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if, if I have a little strength, I'm, I'm not impressed by that. I want to have big strength. And, and I believe that as Americans, we think the same way. Because when I was in high school, and that was a while ago now, uh, we not only had, um, we not only had uh, pickup trucks with the gun rack in the back window, but we wanted the pickup truck that was 18 feet off the ground and had enough diesel... Uh, Good grief, my phone's going off like crazy. I put it on airplane mode. I'm sorry. It's driving me nuts. I shouldn't have had this sitting in front of me. 
the reason I have my cell phone in front of me, by the way, is because after I get done teaching, we're going to do a live worship song together as a group. So that's, wh- that's why I'm doing that. But that said, uh, in the meantime, it's totally distracting me. That's a pastor fail right there. Anyway, um, where was I? He says they had a little strength. So we don't want just a little pickup truck. We don't want just a little camper. We don't want just a little buffet. Whatever it is, we, we make sure to turbo it up. We make sure to have it not just a little buffet, but a huge buffet. We make sure that it's not only a little pickup truck, but it's got to have two turbos on it and tires this size and so much horsepower that I can't just pull my trailer or my camper, but I could actually pull a house over, you know, thousands of horsepower. And so uh, with that being said, we don't like little anything. We don't like little lots to live on. We don't like little tires. And so my point is, uh, he says you have a little strength. And in the eyes of the Lord, this strength being only a little in our minds is a little. He doesn't say you have only a little strength. He says you have a little strength, which is interesting because if you turn to Luke in chapter 19, Jesus speaking to his disciples, Luke 19, that's John 19. I want Luke 19. Jesus speaks to the man by the name of Zacchaeus. And the word there for little strength means strength of little stature. And in Luke 19, verse 1, it says, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Now, I like this because I'm of short stature. And yet, so he ran ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Think about this. He's rich. He's of little stature, but he's rich. And he's not just a tax collector. He's a chief among tax collectors. And yet, to see Jesus, he still had to be lifted up by a tree. He climbed. And so when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus. And he said to him, make haste and come down for today I must stay at your house. And so the things that we see as little, Jesus notices. So he sees him. But in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has spoken as well about not little stature, but little faith. And truly, as believers, our strength doesn't come from our muscles. It doesn't come from drinking some sort of power milk. It doesn't come from steroids. It doesn't come from working out and get all buff. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples another parable, "'The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed.'" which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, than all the herbs, and becomes a tree, so that even the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So the kingdom of heaven is like this, the smallest of all seeds being planted into the ground, and yet when it grows up, it's large enough for even birds to nest in it. And so, They had a little strength. They had also done something else. They had kept his word. Now, maybe this doesn't seem that important, but if you turn with me to Deuteronomy, which I've been reading this week because it's, you know, Deuteronomy, it's it's a Bible favorite. Everybody quotes Deuteronomy. Well, maybe everybody doesn't, but Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than most books. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, This is what is written. Moses speaking to uh, the Israelites as they're getting ready to go into the land that he's not getting ready to go into. And he says this, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness 
to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that in the word of God there is life that is transmitted into our very being. And it's not life that's transmitted through your stomach muscle, being able to take the nutrients out of a food that turns into energy that we can live by, but it's instead instruction for life and for righteousness that is infused into our souls, that whether we live or die, that we will live forever by obedience to the word of God. And so having kept his word. So in John chapter 14... Jesus speaks concerning this very subject. John chapter 14 and verse 15. And he essentially says the same thing that the author of Deuteronomy says. He says, if you love me, he gets down to the nitty gritty. He says, if you truly love me, then keep my commandments. What are his commandments? They're his word. Keep my word. Hide your word in your heart. Hide my word in your heart so that you might not sin against me. And so evidence of faith and life is found where there is obedience to the word of God. You say you have faith, then there should be works attached to that faith. If you really trust the word of God, you're going to live by the word of God. And then he says a third thing. You have not denied my name. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Because I think it's important that we don't deny the name of the Lord God. And yet, what is the name of God? It's his character. The name of God isn't just Jesus, and it's not just Jesus Christ, but it's, his name is wrapped up in who he is. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 10 and read in verse 27... Jesus says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So confessing Jesus, not only confessing him with our lives, but also confessing that he is in fact more than just a man, but he's the son of man, he's the son of God. But then if you turn to the right a few chapters in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 70, it's a lot of verses in that chapter, 26 verse 70, here we see Peter, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied him with an oath. And in some translations, this implies that he actually cursed. He said, Blank! I do not know that man. And yet, a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, but for your speech betrays you. In other words, he had an accent. You're a Galilean. We can tell that you've been with him. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I don't know about you, but I've not always 
confessed the name of Jesus for what it was because I was embarrassed. So if you're of that number, if you're with me and you have denied his name, I want to express to you that there's grace because it's always the day where you can start not denying his name, but instead obeying and confessing him before men as the son of man. Uh, Peter received this grace. And so it's important that we see that maybe you have denied his name. I would encourage you, repent, stop, believe in him, follow him, confess him as Lord of Lords as he truly is. It's not too late yet. But no buts about it before we lose the context of where we're at. He's describing the Philadelphian church and Jesus levied no complaints against this church. None. There were two churches among seven that Jesus had no complaint, no rebuke for. And this is one said church. They had a little strength, they had kept his word, and they had not denied his name. So back in Revelation chapter 3, he says, I know your works. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now, my clicker's not working, Jesse. Can you go back one slide? Yeah, I completely skipped that portion. So, this is a debacle. So these things says the Holy One. See, it's important that we know who's talking to us. In verse 7, he says, I'm the Holy One, I'm the True One, and I'm the holder of David's key. So before we get to the part we just talked about, what we find out is that the man talking to them, Jesus always reveals himself to them in a specific way that he knows that they need to hear. So he says, I'm the holy one. And being holy is not about being crusty and, and religious and pious. But Jesus says, I am holy. And so what does the word holy mean? It means set apart, other, completely different. And, and so we are to be holy as Christians, to be set apart from the world and set apart for God. And one of the ways that we do that is we subject ourselves, we're washed in the water of the word. No man can come to God holy on his own account. We must be made holy by God. He says, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. So the truth isn't just information, but it's a person. And interestingly enough, we live in a day and age where we don't know who we can trust. We don't know who is true. We like to know, think that we can tell when people are lying to us, but even the people in our own home can lie to us and we don't know. Only God knows our heart. And so I think it's interesting that Scripture in three different places says God cannot lie. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God who cannot lie. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, also says that God cannot lie. I love that because when he tells me things many times, it makes me think that can't be true. I don't know anybody that reads scripture that actually is, is reading it, not just perusing it, that doesn't read it and go, well, that can't possibly be true because a couple of verses ago, he said this. And it's, it's supposed to cause us to go, really? And I think if you read scripture and you never, never have that moment and go, really? Then you're not actually paying attention because Jesus said many things to his disciples, to the Pharisees that caused them to go, is this guy nuts? I mean, think about it. Jesus comes on the scene and he's, he's on a boat, they're crossing, and as they cross the, the Galilean Sea, a storm comes up. And they're questioning, was this a good idea? Because Jesus said, let's go cross to the other side. And as they're on the boat, this big storm swells up, like they do in that region, and the whole boat is tossing and tipping, and it, it'd be like being out on a lake, a large lake, in a John boat. Except there's 12 guys, 13 and as they're on the boat, 
He they wake Jesus up and they go, wake up. Don't you know that we're perishing? And he wakes up and he, he rebukes the waves. He rebukes the storm. The storm calms and all of a sudden they go, who is this man? They're asking the question, who is this man? But he told them already several times who he was. And yet he rebukes them and says, do you still not have any faith? Do you not still believe who I said I am is who I am? And so all the time we're being questioned in ourselves, do you really believe who Jesus has told you that he is? So to these Christians, he says, I am holy. I am the true one. And I am the holder of David's key. Now, without going there, you can go there on your own time. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20 through 23, this is the passage. And if you read the book of Revelation, most of the verses are actually referring to the Old Testament. They're references. They're, they're, they're pointing out information about Jesus and what he said he would do. They're fulfilling prophecy. But in Isaiah's chapter 22, Isaiah prophesies establishing a man by the name of Eliakim in his day who would essentially have the position of treasurer in Israel, in David's kingdom. And as he prophesies about this, he says that Eliakim will actually have the key. He will be the holder of David's key to the treasury of the kingdom. And yet this passage is speaking about Jesus having the key of David's kingdom. And that key gives access to the treasury, just like in Isaiah chapter 22. Except Jesus holds the key. He has the only access to the treasuries of heaven. The treasuries of heaven. Now, I want you to think about this as we get ready to move on. What is stored up in heaven? But as we think about that, I want to read through uh, verse 10 to make sure I'm in the right spot this time. He says in verse 10, sorry, he says in verse 8, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say there are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So right now, the situation that you live in, Philadelphian church, is that everybody that is in the synagogue, these Jewish believers that are also mentioned in one of the other seven churches, they are really not Jews, but they're a synagogue of Satan. They're actually against me. And so what he says here to them is that I'm going to take these people that claim to be followers of me, and I'm going to show them that I actually love you and not them. Because the Jews in those days, they were a group of people that had a state-recognized religion that were still able to gather legally. And yet the Christians were kind of an off-scouring. They were not allowed to worship. And so because of that, he says, don't worry, they will get theirs. That's what Jesus is saying. They are mocking you. They're giving you grief and trouble. And yet what I'm going to do with them is I'm going to show them who's actually mine, who I actually love. You know, if God really loves you, he'll let you do what you have always done. And that's what they were saying to the Christians. And yet the Philadelphians are tempted to doubt God's love. He says, I'm going to make them bow down at your feet. And so um, I will make your enemies your footstool. And if you read in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Jesus has already said this to, or excuse me, Paul has already written this to his followers, Jesus' followers in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, which I keep skipping over. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, there it is. Chapter 2, in verse 5, Jesus, he's speaking of here, he says, Let this mind be in you, Christians, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So their position as believers would be equal with Jesus in some ways, because at the end of all things, we will sit together with Jesus and rule and reign, and all those who have rejected Jesus' authority here on earth will be subjected to it in the end time. And so I will make all of, he says, your enemies, but what he's saying is our enemies who have not humbled themselves to me, I will make them to bow down and worship at your feet because you have worshiped me and subjected yourself to my authority. So I have there for you, watch your character. Let God take care of your character. Let him develop that in you, no matter what other people have to say about you or to you. Let your character become like Christ and the Lord will take care of your reputation. And so he says this to this church. He also says in verse 10, he says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So he says these I will statements. I will make your enemies your footstool. I will keep you from the hour of trial that affects the whole world. Now, this is why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I believe that the church will be raptured before the great tribulation. All those who have persevered, all those who have held fast to God's word, all those who have not denied his name. I will keep you, he says, from the hour of trial that affects the whole world. The great tribulation, which we will see described in chapter 6 through 19. I believe this because he says, I will keep you from... So he's speaking to the Philadelphian church, these that I've just described. I will keep you, these believers, and those like them from the hour of trial. But then he says, the trial, meaning a specific hour of trial for a definite amount of time. He says, which shall come, which implies that this trial has not yet happened, and it will happen in the future. But then he says, kind of honing it in, making it more specific, this trial, which will come in the future upon the whole world. Now, trials and diverse temptations and things happen to us. They're diverse. They happen in different areas. But this one in particular will be upon the whole world, which is global. Now, right now we're in a trial that's not just local, but it's global. And I believe that this isn't isn't the trial, this isn't the great tribulation, but leading up to the great tribulation, there will be tremors. Just like leading up to a major earthquake, there will be tremors. And the Bible describes the end of times like a birth. And leading up to that birth, there will be what the Bible describes as birth pangs or labor pains. And I believe that we are experiencing one right now, globally. For the first time, like I've ever seen it in my lifetime, and many that are older than me, for the first time that they've seen in their lifetime. And so this global trial, I will keep you from this great tribulation. And then he says, those who dwell on the earth will not escape it. Now, those who dwell on the earth, or pagans, or Gentiles, or you know, people that are not the people of God, in the Bible, that's describing the unsaved. So these are reasons, I believe, in the pre-tribulational view of the rapture of the church in Revelation. But he says all of this, and he says that the, the point of the great tribulation, he mentions it here in verse 10, he says, this hour of trial, which shall come, upon the whole world, and the point of it, he says here, is to test those who dwell on the earth, to test those, to prove what they really are. And then he says to the church, behold, I'm coming quickly. When it happens, when the great tribulation comes, when Jesus' second coming comes, it will come quickly, and it will happen at a day and an hour 
that we do not expect if we're not ready. And yet Paul writes in Thessalonians that it shouldn't come upon you as if you've never heard of it before, that you shouldn't be completely unaware because I've told you these things ahead of time. He says, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And so he says, I will, some more I will statements, I will come quickly. I will come at the right time. That it wasn't a lie that Jesus said he would come back. He's just said, I am the true one. I am the holy one. So when he makes a promise, you can bet your bippy he's going to come through on it. He's going to make right on it. God cannot lie. But then he says to these Christians, I will make you a pillar in the house of God. Now, interesting, if you know the context of the Philadelphian church, oftentimes these Philadelphians, because they lived in a earthquake hotbed, they were, I don't know if they were living close to a fault line or what, but history tells us that the location is a place where they would often have to flee their dwellings that would be destroyed in earthquakes. And by the time they would come back after every, the dust settles, they would come back to their city completely destroyed except for what? Pillars. Pillars would remain standing. Look at the old ruins that we see in the world we live in right now. If you go to these foreign cities, if you go to these places that are famous, they're now historic sites, and what's the only thing still sitting there? Foundations and pillars. That's because pillars are designed to hold up through anything, through anything being shaken. And so he says to them, I'm going to make you a pillar. A pillar is a permanent, unshakable fixture. So all things right now in our lives are being shaken. Think about the things in the last week in your life that you saw as, as permanent. They're always going to be their things that have been taken away. You know, think about it. I'm not going to list them out because you know what I'm talking about. There are things that you have invested time and effort and energy and finances into that all of a sudden have been taken from you. You have no choice. You don't get to go do it. And that's, that stinks. But what Jesus tells us is that the grass withers, the flowers of the earth will fade, but the word of God will remain forever. Now more than ever, people are open to hearing the word of God because they're, they're finding out that it's actually coming to pass, the things that Jesus said. But then he says to them, I will, he says, I will come quickly. I will make you a pillar in the house of God and I will write on him, those who have persevered, those who have overcome, I'll write on them the name of God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want my kids writing on themselves. But if I write some, something on them, it's okay, because I'm a hypocrite. But God's not a hypocrite. He says, I'm going to write on them that overcome the name of God. Why? Well, think about this. What do you write your name on? Do you write your name on the things that you possess that you want to make sure that you get back when you lend them out? That's what Jesus does. He's going to write on us his name, the name of his God. God, the name of God's going to be written on us because we are his possession. He, we're on loan right now. We're in the world, but we're his. And so when he comes to claim his possessions, we will be found with a name tag. I belong to God. I love this. He says, I'm going to write on him the name of the city of my God, which speaks to our citizenship. We got a green card. We got a citizenship card. We're, we're official. We get in and out of the gate because we can prove that we're citizens because God's going to write on us the name of the city of his God. So I'm going to turn real quick to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Because in there, interestingly enough, Paul writes something very similar to the Philippian church. It's interesting because the Philippian church was very poor. They didn't have much. 
So he's reminding them of their citizenship. He's reminding them of their inhabitants eternally. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And then he also says in verse 12 of chapter 3 in Revelation, I will write on him my new name. Did you know that God is writing on you his character? And it defaces our flesh when his character is written onto us. Jesus said, if anybody would come after me, he must first deny himself and his desires and come after me and follow me. Pick up his cross and follow me. So that means deny yourself, deny yourself desires, but then pick up the cross, which is a symbol of death, and then follow me, which is a symbol of us doing the things that he does now instead of the things that we want. And so as we do that, Christ uses these circumstances. He uses trials. He uses everything that happens in our life to conform us into the image of Christ. And what he's doing is he's, he's writing on us his character. He's developing in us his likeness. And in 1 John chapter 3, John, who is writing to us in the book of Revelation, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, or his revelation comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So as he is pure, we become pure. He who overcomes, Christ makes pure. Does that make sense? So then he continues on, and I want to make a specific point based on what we studied this morning. Because he said to this church all of these things. He says, here's who I am. Here's what I will do. And here's what I have given you. I think it's important that our Christian walk doesn't start with what I can do for God, but it always starts with what he is, who he is. Who he is matters more than anything that we bring to the table because who he is brings a response out of us. If we've truly seen Jesus for who he is, it should change who we are if we say that we trust him and we're following him. But then it goes from who he is to then not what I can do, but he says, for he who overcomes, he who anchors himself to what I've told him, I will do these things. So look at this. It's all about what God has done and what he will do. So what's our response to that? What can we add to the things that God has done? And I would submit to you nothing, and I would also submit to you everything, because he's also told them what he's given them. He's given them opportunity. He says in chapter 3, when he's telling them who he is, he says, I'm holy, I'm true, I have the key of David, and I'm the one who opens and I'm the one who closes and no one can shut. What he does is only his ability to do. But then if you look at it, he says this in verse 9. No, sorry, verse 8. He says, see Philadelphian church. And I would say, see Christian church right now. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. What you need to know about the Philadelphian church is they were an out the, the city itself was an outpost. It was a missionary post, not for the gospel, by the way. It was a missionary post 
where the Greek culture could actually influence the small towns around them. They wanted to convert the barbarians, not to Christianity, but they wanted to convert them to high society. They wanted them to stop speaking like barbarians. It was when, when you called somebody a barbarian, you were mocking them. You were mocking the way they talked because it sounded like they talked like this, bar, 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 bar. So when you call them a barbarian, you're slandering the way they sound. You're calling them slack-jawed, if you will. And so they would send out these little contingencies into towns. And what's interesting about the Philadelphian outpost of Greece was that after three generations, they, they taught these people how to speak Greek. They, they cultured them or uncultured them, however you want to look at it. And because of that, they forgot where they came from. They forgot their language. They forgot their culture. They bred out their culture. They no longer knew what it meant to be a Lydian because that was the culture they went to. But what's interesting is that Jesus has put these Christians in the same town of influence. Jesus put Christians in a small outpost place that had huge worldly influence. And I think that that's kind of similar to what he's done in our lives right now. And so it's not what we can, so, so I want to point out that we have this treasury that God has pointed out to this church, that they have a treasury that he has the key to, and the door to this treasury is open right now. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And I have a point to all of this, so bear with me. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. I asked you the question earlier, what is stored in heaven's treasury? Jesus says to his disciples, do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, Matthew 6, 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the treasury of heaven is not a place that I have a key to and I can steal from and deal with my own stuff. The treasury in heaven is actually a place that's been left open so we can stuff stuff away. Picture it as your heavenly 401k or your heavenly pension, your heavenly reward. He says, he who overcomes will by no means lose his crown. And yet we don't get to be a crown here on earth, do we? But in heaven, we're given a crown, which is a reward that we will get and be able to give to Jesus because he's the only one that deserves it. But in this treasury that Jesus has told us he has open and no one can shut it, he also says that when I close it, no one can open it. So the place that you and I are in historically, geographically, circumstantially right now, in COVID-19 world, affords opportunities that a week ago did not exist. I've had more conversations about Jesus right now with people that are non-believers than ever. Now, part of that is I've been emboldened. I've had my mouth opened because I'm realizing that Jesus said he's going to come back, and I'm a little scared of that at first. But then I'm convicted because I shouldn't be scared of that. He promised that, and that's actually the best thing that's going to happen, ever. Jesus is going to come back, and I'm going to spend eternity with him. Oh, happy day. I don't have to worry about whether or not my health insurance is going to cover the, the bills. I don't have to worry. I mean, people are more open to hope than they've ever been, and they're looking for it. And if you don't believe me, this is how sad it is. They're looking for hope, and they are finding it where? In toilet paper. You ever thought of that? We think it's silly, and we make jokes and memes, and it makes no sense because they're trying to control at least one thing in their lives. But it's a symptom to the fact that they're looking for something stable. And I am here to tell you that toilet paper ain't stable. You can't even wipe off a table with it without it dissolving. It's a vain hope. It's a soap bubble. And yet, people are looking for hope. Look at the empty aisles. And yet, we have toilet paper 
and I can't believe I even just said that, we don't have toilet paper. We have real hope. We have Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can cleanse our flesh. And I don't mean to be derogatory. I am dirty. That's the gospel. And Jesus came to wash me clean with his own blood. And if I truly believe that, that he's the cure to spiritual cancer, he's the cure to spiritual coronavirus that will kill many souls and damn them to hell. And yet the door is open wide for salvation. What's the door? What's the door to heaven? There's only one. And in John chapter 10, we see this. Turn there. John chapter 10. I'm going to go back a slide so I can remember. Verse 7. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. He says it twice. Verse 9, I'm the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will, not he might, not he hopes to be, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. What's that referred to? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. My cup overflows, even in the presence of my enemies. He says, he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, however, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The idea is overflowing, real life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd give his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he doesn't stick around and defend him. He leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf catches the sheep and he scatters them. What God means for good, the enemy is trying to do scattering right now. But I believe God's going to use it for good. And the door is open for salvation for anyone who will believe. I believe that in many ways, because we're not able to gather on a mass quantity scale, God's calling us to one-on-one conversations that actually mean something. When was the last time you asked somebody if they knew Jesus? Here's your opportunity because all the things they're hoping in, all of a sudden, they don't know what to do with it because those things are taken away. But he also says that though when he opens the door, nobody can shut it, when he closes the door, no one will be able to open it. And it made me think of the story in Genesis chapter 7. Turn there with me as we get to a close. Genesis chapter 7 is the story of the ark. The Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to reign on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah, receiving this instruction, did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. He did all that God commanded him. Uh, he, he, he held fast to the word of God. Here comes destruction. Hear my instruction. So of the clean animals, of the animals that are unclean, of birds and everything that creeps, creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God has commanded Noah. 
And it came to pass that after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. God can't lie, right? What he said came to pass. And in 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day that Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons were with them, they entered the ark. On the same day that they entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind, all the cattle of every kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort, and they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life, so that so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. So what's interesting is that Noah, in his day, received the word of God, did not deny his leadership, did not deny his word. He obeyed it to a T. He entered the, the boat and then God shut the door. Noah didn't shut the door. And I would submit to you that God has the door open right now, but it won't always be open. And yet what it says in Matthew chapter 24 is important. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus speaking of the end times says this in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so that also will be the coming of the Son of Man." Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect." So my question is, if the door is open and people are at least open to the conversation, are we willing to take advantage of the open door? Are we willing to point to the open door? I heard a testimony this week at Rubles Meat Market that the owner stands up in the middle of the day and says, hey, you don't have to stick around, but I just want to pray for us right now. I want to pray for us as people and our families and as a business, but also for the nation and what's going on. And people stood there in awe and reverence, and they let him pray over them. Two weeks ago, store owners weren't doing that. And I would submit to you that you could probably walk into any store right now and publicly say, I'd like to pray for all of us right now for safety, for health, and for people to know Jesus, and I don't think too many people would get mad at you. The harvest is ripe. The fields are white. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to take advantage of where God has us right now, or are we going to waste it and complain? I haven't heard a lot of complaining. I spent lots of time yesterday with my kids. I mowed the grass. I talked to all of my neighbors. Every single neighbor that I have was out in their yard, and it was like old times. I was waiting for the street light to come on so we could go in and eat dinner. But the reality is um, we have an opportunity unlike we had a couple weeks ago. And I know I've gone long, um, but I, I think that the, the time is now for us to open our mouths, to share our only true hope, and to leave the results up to the Lord. So as we ready to close, I want to tell everybody on the live feed that as soon as we close, we're going to shut down the video and then I'm going to start another one and we're going to close with a song of praise. So Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship. We don't know what the coming days have for us. We know that for the people in Philadelphia, um, they had an open door. And I believe that you've met us once again and you're telling us we have an open door. 
Help us to walk through it. Help us to take these treasures, these, these, these souls that you've placed us around that don't know you. Lord, we're stored up in heaven and you're gonna close us in. We're safe. But what about those around us? Help us to love our neighbor truly, not by distancing ourselves from them, although that's a real thing, but help us to come near to them and share what really we need to deal with. We need to be socially distant uh, in the way that we need to be um, set apart for your use. So Father, help us to take advantage of that. We love you. We thank you for your protection. We pray for your protection for us physically, but Lord, help us to dig deep spiritually. Help us to double down and to really place our full weight of trust and faith in you upon your son. We know that you are a foundation that cannot be shaken. And Father, I pray that you would help us not to be shaken. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Help us to be overcomers. Help us to dig deep. Help us to anchor ourselves to the one foundation that cannot be taken. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.